So one of the most impactful books I've read around coaching is Inside Out Coaching by Joe Ehrman. And I remember Ehrman talking about in the book about success as a coach. What will matter the most to us when we're on our deathbed? And it won't be trophies, but it will be knowing that we were loved and that we had a positive impact on others in the world. And so as we discussed the politics of coaching uh, with the author Carl Pearson, I thought a lot about that. And the reason is because Carl has been fighting stage four cancer for the last year. And today's conversation is incredible because while we finish up this you know, conversation around politics and coaching, you know, we finish up with um, talking about what's most important in coaching and his perspective on coaching as he's gone through this experience of, of fighting to hold on to as much time as he can, as much time as he's got left. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin, the founder of TOC Culture Consulting. I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. We work with coaches to help them build a better culture, to grow as leaders, and to find greater meaning and purpose in this vocation of coaching. And if you want to learn more about our work and how we might be able to help you or your organization, head on over to TOCculture.com. Now let's get into the last part of our conversation with Carl Pearson. I want to jump into something we've already kind of mentioned, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I think you had some really good uh, points in the book um, around playing time. And, and you mentioned you've made mistakes there and you've seen other coaches. And I think it is probably the most talked about thing in coaching or issue around culture. And I think this is where we expect blind loyalty and commitment and buy-in to our team is like around roles and playing time. And we actually, as coaches, back to your communication piece, I don't think we do a great job of actually communicating these roles because unlike even our culture surveys that we do across programs, it's like, I don't really understand what my role is. I don't understand why I don't play. Like, the, you know, like it's just a constant feedback from, from players. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you see are some of the mistakes that coaches are making around playing time? And, and what are some of the solutions? Well, the number one thing you have to do is be honest with kids. And at, at the very beginning of the season, you know, when, when we would have tryouts, um, you know, we would identify our top eight kids. And then whoever that ninth kid was going to be, you know, we didn't announce our team until we'd have individual meetings with each player and say, here's where we see you. Are you willing to accept that role? Because if they're not, well, then, you know, now I might have a different conversation with another kid and say, hey, you're going to be our ninth kid coming off the bench, right? But when I would have that conversation with a player, you know, I would, I would understand that's probably not what they aspired to. They didn't want to be the, the third person off the bench. But the thing that I would say to them is, you know, if you don't want that role, no hard feelings, you know, and, and it's probably best for you to, to walk away from the team because that's where we see you. It doesn't mean that that's where you're going to be all season. There could be injuries. You know, maybe you improve, maybe somebody else does. But this is where you're at, and I want you to go into the season expecting this is my role, and if you can't accept that, it's probably best that you walk away. Well, occasionally I would have a kid walk away at that point, um, but most of the time what would happen is I would say, you know, but here's the other thing I want you to realize. There's no one else we would rather have being that first person off the bench than you. You are the person we want in that role. And that's going to be an important and invaluable role. You got to make the kid feel valued. Um, and then that's why I would say 90, 95% of the time, the kid would accept the role. 
because you know you you explain to them this is still going to be an important thing and we need you to to push the starters at practice we need you to do those things for us to be a successful team but if you're not honest with them at the outset and in like you just said the biggest problem is kids having question marks like where do i fit in or why didn't i play as much in this game but i played a lot more in this game and so i would tell a kid that sometimes before the game hey this team plays a lot of zone we're going to have to play more shooters in this game uh as opposed to you know you're you're kind of a slasher driver and 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 so you may not play as much in this game and so i would have that conversation with them in advance so they didn't have those question marks because that's that's what leads to frustration and then that's what leads to the cancer that we were talking about um so clearly communicating those roles and doing it in an honest way is is really one of the most important things we can do as coaches i think related to that you know we've gotten a lot of mileage the last year or two out of communicating scenarios that have happened in the past where you know as you mentioned somebody gets hurt somebody gets in foul trouble we end up playing a team that's got two six footers and we have to use different personnel you know or a player gets better as the year goes on and and just you know both laying out the path that this is why we have made some of these decisions in the past so it's not necessarily i'm talking about carl in front of the whole team and why he's not going to play you know but i'm talking about john who was number nine four years ago and kind of his experience in that spot you know and and ultimately you're hoping that they start to gain a little bit more perspective on number one as our kids would tell you from some of these conversations last year some of the decisions we have to make as coaches are educated guesses at best and not always with clear-cut answers you know and i remember answering a, a parent email about a substitution we made with seven seconds left in the game last year and we pulled out a kid to put our best defender in and mom just didn't understand and she emailed me because her daughter didn't understand you know really and so after talking to the the player that I pulled out in a one-on-one, -on -one, I asked her if I could share the situation with the team at our next kind of culture day or whatever. And she said that I could, because what she didn't understand was we were shooting a one-on-one -on -one free throw. And so for me to get the best defender in, normally we would have taken the shooter out, but if she misses the front end, I don't get her out of the game. So I wanted to get the best defender in no matter what. So I, I had, and I showed her the tape, you know, we had seven seconds as a coach to get from the bench to the scorers table before they handed the ball to the shooter and that was what i came up with in seven seconds now 48 hours later i would have done it a little bit differently but players have never thought like that before you know and so just providing some context on some of those decisions i think can also if nothing else especially if it's done with some humility it, it allows for some grace for the coach that when we do get it wrong you know we just we guessed wrong based on the the information that that we had, but that transparency, I think you're exactly right, is so important. Now, I want to ask you one more question here about this is more roster construction, I think, than playing time. But I'll, I'll tell you a question we get all the time in October for basketball coaches is what do I do with seniors, the loyal seniors that have been out for four years and the talented underclassmen? When do I bring the underclassmen up? What do they have to do to earn playing time? What do I do with the kid that's been out for four years and done everything I asked? But, you know, ultimately, I don't think he's going to be as good a player as sophomore over here. How do you just encourage coaches to think about the challenge of that senior versus underclassman dilemma? Well, I think there's a, a subtitle in the politics of coaching. I, I, I may be wrong about this, but, you know, there's that, that famous quote, uh, hell hath no fury like a woman scorn. 
And I, I adapted it to say, uh, hell hath no fury like the parent of a cut senior, because they have nothing to lose, right? If, if you cut their kid as a senior, they don't have to worry about repercussions down the road. They are out for blood and they're going to come after you and they want you gone as a coach because you destroyed their child's senior season, that sacred senior year. And so it's something that as a coach, you have to be really, really cautious about. And, and I mean, the, the, the advice I give flat out is if you don't cut a kid as a junior, if you've kept them in your program as a junior and they come out as a senior, then you better be prepared to keep them. Because when a kid's been that loyal to your program all the way through, their senior year, right? And so you, you need to, you kind of need to look ahead a little bit and say, well, if this kid's not going to fit in our plans, as, actually, that reminds me of a, a really good series of questions uh, that I learned from a head baseball coach that I worked for 20 years ago. In his preseason meeting with the players, he would say, all right, you got to ask yourself three questions and you got to be able to answer yes to two of these three questions. If you can't, it's going to be hard for you to make this team. The first question is, did I help the team last year? Was I, was I on the varsity team? Did I help the team last year? The, the next question is, can I help the team this year? And then the third question is, can I help the team next year? All right, so if, if you're a senior and you were on the JV team as a junior, did you help the team last year? Mm, probably not. Can you help the team this year? Well, yeah. Can you help the team next year? No. So they're only answering yes to one out of those three questions. Well, anyway, by him presenting those questions to the players preseason, a lot of the kids would kind of cut themselves, right? They would, they would answer those questions in their head and say, oh, yeah. And it would, it would save them the humility of being cut, right? And, and then if the kid decides not to try out, you don't have to worry about the parent coming after you because the kid made that decision. You're not the bad guy for cutting them. So I always thought that was a really clever series of questions. Now, that doesn't mean every kid's going to see the writing on the wall, wall when you present them, I think, in some ways. Um, the other thing that I would say is when you're, you're saying, all right, I got a younger player that's talented. I got a senior here. Who am I going to keep? Especially with a new coach, it's so tempting to keep that sophomore because you're thinking about two or three years down the road, I'm going to build a, a dynasty, right? But you still have the, the same issues if you cut that senior. They don't care that you're a new coach. That parent's going to be out for blood. So my criteria has always been the younger player can't be as good as the senior. If they're equally good, you keep the senior. That younger player has to be noticeably better. And like everybody on your team has to be able to recognize, oh, yeah, that kid is definitely more talented than this one. Because then if you cut that senior and you keep the younger kid, you're going to have the support of everybody on your team because they recognize, yep, that kid's better. But if it's a coin toss, you better keep the senior. Otherwise, you're opening up a whole can of worms that is uh, not something you probably want to have to deal with. Well, let me push that scenario a little bit further down the road. Let's say that it's December 10th. You've kept the senior. The underclassman is dressing varsity. They're playing lights out at JV. And your staff starts to have this conversation of when is it time to pull the trigger and move the underclassmen in front of the senior in the rotation or the starting lineup or whatever it might be. How do you, I mean, I think as coaches, we've got our criteria when, it, when we know it's time, but doing that can create a whole lot of problems or it can be done in a way that, you know, it makes sense for the team. So how do you navigate 
that decision. And I guess it's not always with an underclassman and with an upperclassman, but that usually seems to get the most virulent, you know, response if you're going to promote a freshman in front of a senior. So how do you encourage coaches to handle a situation like that? That is challenging because, you know, when you established roles at the start of the season, and that was kind of the expectation that I'm, I'm the fifth starter or whatever it might be. And now a month or six weeks into the season, performance has necessitated a change. That's always going to be a difficult conversation. But again, as the coach, you have to do what's in the best interest of the team. And so you have to be willing to have that hard conversation with the player who's going to now take on a different role. And when I've had that conversation with kids, I'll say, I know this isn't easy and I know you don't like it, but this is where we're at right now. Doesn't mean that's where we're going to be at in two weeks or a month, but here's where we're at. And again, if you can't accept this role, it's probably best that you go do something else because we don't want you to pollute our program and and create a toxic environment with our team by pouting and 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 complaining and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, you're still a valued member of this team. Your role is changing. Uh, and if you can't accept it, then you need to go do something else. Um, now, again, I've had some kids, actually, now that I think about it, I think I only had, well, maybe two. I think I've had two kids in that scenario walk away from the team. And that was, that was for the best. And when they did, I didn't say a negative word to our team about them. I said, you know what? This kid made the decision that was best for them. We still love them. We still support them. Um, they weren't going to be happy in this role. So it's probably in everybody's best interest that they go do something else. Um, and, and so you can keep it that way in a positive light and, and still, you know, and, and one of those kids, um, I still have a great relationship with them to this day. You know, they walked away mid season, but I didn't say anything negative about them. They realized they weren't going to be happy. And so, you know, we, we, we parted on good terms and, uh, it's not always going to be that easy, but that's what you're shooting for. Well, I think there's a lesson in there too that, you know, when we communicate and you talked about this at the opener, that you have to care about kids as people first. And even if they don't provide value for you in return. So if a kid decides to walk away in the middle of a year or decides not to go out as a senior, I mean, there's so many coaches that that kid's just dead to them because they don't offer anything that's going to benefit the team. But if they show up in your class and you treat them just like you did yesterday, or you see them in the hall and you still greet them, or I mean, I still text with kids that, you know, quit after their sophomore year that I'm still encouraging them in their softball games and their, you know, and their other activities, because I want, I want that reputation that we care about kids first, you know, before it comes down to what they, you know, they've offer us, you know, in return, so to speak. And I think that message is so, you know, so important for coaches to keep in mind, even when it's not easy and really doesn't benefit us. It's the right thing to do, right. To be consistent in that way. We had a somebody here in town was really kind to organize a, a basketball reunion for me back in May. And they invited all my former players from Red Wing and Champlin Park. And then we obviously had a big contingency from Waconia. And as I got up to speak at the very end, you know, I, I told them, you know, I, I send out happy birthday messages to all my players. I, I keep track, you know, it's one of the things I have them fill out on their preseason uh, form is when's your birthday. So then I can put it in my phone and I have all these reminders popping up. It's so-and-so's birthday today. 
So that way, even when a kid's gone, I mean, these are kids that I coached 15 or 20 years ago. They know that on their birthday, they're going to hear from me because they're still important to me. And that's the thing I said to those kids. You're not just important to me when you play for me. You will always be important to me as long as I'm around, you know, and, and at least one day a year, we're going to connect and I'm going to see how you're doing and, and where your life's at. And, and I think if we can do that as coaches, um, that, you know, it, it makes a huge difference. And, you know, to see all those faces in the same room that night was, was pretty emotional. Um, but it, if, you, if you go about coaching in the right way, I think that's how it should end up, you know. And it's awesome that you got to experience that. I remember you posting, talking about that on Twitter, and I showed it to my wife, and I said, you know, at some point, if I got one request, it's I want to have an experience like that where, you know, those players come back and you kind of get to see your lifeline as a coach. I, I can't imagine how awesome, you know, that night was for you. I got two more questions for you, and then JP's got one to get you out the door here. Um, you talk in the book about framing winning and losing. And there's a there's a great line in there. You say there's nothing more dangerous than a 500 team that brings everybody back. And I think that that's a, you know, in a nutshell, the importance of framing outcomes or expectations for the season. I think as coaches, sometimes we're afraid to do that. I know I was early in my career. If I knew we were going to struggle to be 500, I didn't want to give that message at the preseason meeting, you know, with parents, because then you get labeled as a guy that doesn't have high expectations. And, you know, like there's you can open the door some to some criticism that way. But at the same time, if you don't do something and parents or players are coming in with unrealistic expectations that are not going to be met, that's going to lead to disappointment. That's going to cause a whole slew of other issues. And so when it comes to that sort of delicate issue of whether it's dealing with winning and losing, whether it's bringing kids back, whether it's setting realistic expectations for the season, how do you do that in a tactful way? Well, speaking specifically to that scenario you presented where you know, let's say you have a team full of underclassmen and you finish 12 and 12 and maybe win a playoff game or something. It's natural and good for people to have high expectations heading into the next season. Uh, you want that. You want that positive vibe and, and you don't want to do anything to undermine that. However, you do have to give them a dose of reality and help the, them and their parents understand that you're not going to go from 12 and 12 to 24 and two just because you ripped four or five pages off a calendar, right? Just because there's now an SR next to your name in the program doesn't mean you automatically win games. You're, you were 12 and 12 for a reason. You're going to have to do something in that interim, in those six months of your offseason to improve, to really cash in on those expectations. It's okay to have those expectations, but don't think that you can just be the same player and that suddenly because you're a senior, you're going to have success. Nope, we're going to have to work in the offseason to make that happen. And I think most people will say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and, and they're not going to see that as you being negative. They're going to see that as being realistic and, and an important kind of motivational tool. Well, my last question here, and then JP's got one more. So it's been 11 years, I think, since the book has been published. And when you look back at it, if you were going to do a second edition, uh, is there another chapter that you would add or, or, you know, a different perspective maybe that wasn't in the book originally that you think would be important for coaches to, to, to have now? Well, yeah, there, I've kind of got two answers to that question. Um, one of them is I've received so many emails over the years from coaches saying, well, here's a new chapter 
in the next book that you come out with because this is you know nobody's ever experienced this before um so yeah i could probably write a second book based on those emails alone but you know 11 years out i think that if i could change something about the book and i i reference it at the very end but the book has a kind of a cutthroat approach and it's like you know survival and and it kind of gives off this vibe that the coaching profession is dangerous and it's it's everybody's out to get you and at the at the very end i say now listen 90% of the parents and players you encounter are great people you know it's just the 10% you got to watch out for and that's what this book is about well after i i should say this my experience coaching in waconia was nothing but positive the 8 years that i was the head coach here i mean everything just the community was so supportive. The parents were wonderful. The kids were great. And, and I've said, if I had started coaching here, I probably could have never written the book because <laughs> I wouldn't have had all those other experiences. But I think the thing that I would try to emphasize more to coaches is it is still a fantastically rewarding profession. Um, you just got to watch out for those 10%. And, and instead of focusing so much on that, try to focus more on the the wonderful things that come with coaching as well. I think that's a a great point and I think that was I'm so glad you mentioned that because as I read the book you know I'm one of those people it's like ah I'm not into the politics I'm not going to get caught up in that I'm just going to go do my job and try to make an impact and if they fire me they fire me like that's my, where kind of where I feel like I am now but I think it makes a lot of sense for us to be aware of these things that could derail our mission, you know, and just things that we could just do some small, small changes or be a little bit more intentional or coaching to pay attention to the politics of coaching that can um, help to maybe avoid some issues and have a greater impact. Question I, I've got for you here, Carl, and you can choose to go as deep as you want in, in this question, but you've shared on social media and you shared with us beforehand how you um, have been diagnosed with cancer and you're in a fight for your life at the moment. And I'm wondering if, as you read this, this book, or you wrote this book and, you know, all these years later, and I know you've mentioned that you've kind of you stepped down from coaching about three, three, four years ago as well. Um, I'm just wondering how that's changed your perspective on coaching. Like sometimes I feel like it's sports and we put so much effort into this and it, we lose, have so many sleepless nights. We make, we sacrifice so much time with family. It's like, still, we're just putting a leather ball through an iron hoop, you know, like it's kind of trivial in the same, in some ways. And I just have to imagine that you know, if you're in a fight with cancer, like it, it brings even greater perspective than, than, than I would even have, obviously. Well, you know, in the last several months, as I've reflected on it, I mean, the, the first thing I'll tell you is I feel enormously blessed that I got to spend my adult life as a teacher and a coach, and I got to really enjoy what I did. I mean, how, how, how fortunate are we in the coaching profession to get to do what we love and get paid for it? Because there's a lot of people out there that work jobs where that's not the case. They, they work the job because they have to work a job, and they don't like it, but you know, they need it to pay the bills. We get to go do something we love all the time. And yes, it's challenging. Coaching is challenging and we have those highs and lows, but that's one of the great things about it, that we invest ourselves so much into it 
we have sleepless nights and then we we experience the euphoria of of success and and i loved the emotional swings that came with coaching you know whether it was high or low that that was one of the the great things about it you know i think if if i had it to do all over again I probably would not have put as much emphasis on my scouting reports and preparing for the next opponent and put a little bit more emphasis on character building and life lessons. You know, we, we get those through, through games and coaching, but, you know, there would only probably be about four or five times a season where I'd go out of my way and say, all right, this is something that you really need to carry with you through life. This is not just about basketball. This is not just about, you know, what, what we're dealing with here, but Here's how this is going to help you the next 40 or 50 years. I should have done more of that. And so I think those of you that are still in the coaching profession, um, you know, some of you are great at it. I was probably not as good at it as I should have been. And so if you can find five or 10 minutes in a couple practices every week to emphasize some of those life things, I think that you'll, you'll be able to look back at the end and say, boy, I, I, I'm really proud of what I did. And I, I still am to a large extent. I do feel like I had a little bit of a missed opportunity because I didn't do that as much as I would have liked. Um, but that, that's what I would say. There's, there's one other thing I, you shared off, off air that really I, I want to share with so many people, which is that you, you know, the reason why you stepped out of coaching and you, you stepped out because your boys were getting to the age where you couldn't be around with them and how you don't regret that. I don't know if you could just share that. I mean, cause I think so often coaches struggle with that balance. Like how did you get to that place where you could make that decision? And do you have any regrets of, of leaving coaching as early as you did? Well, I think I was in a little bit of a different situation than a lot of coaches in that I had got to coach for 10 or 15 years before I had kids. You know, and, and I spent a lot of that time as a head varsity coach. And so as my boys got to reach the ages of 10 and 7, and I was starting to miss out on their activities because we had a game that night or, you know, I missed a band concert or I missed a, um, a fifth grade basketball game because I was scouting or something like that. It was pretty easy for me to say, you know what, I've had my fun. I've got to, to do this coaching thing for a long time and I really enjoyed it. It is now time to put my own kids first. Um, I remember a guy that I coached with years ago, he said, when you reach a point in coaching where you're spending more time with other people's kids than with your own kids, it's time to get out of coaching. And I never forgot that. And I had gotten to that point. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I left coaching and did I miss it? I did here and there, but I never regretted it because I got to spend so much more time with my own kids and now, especially in the position I'm in, where I probably only have a few more months left with them, I am eternally grateful that I got these last three years to be there for all of my kids' activities and, and be that supportive, loving dad that I wouldn't have got to be if I had continued with coaching. I appreciate you sharing that. You mentioned uh, the new book, and I'll give you a chance here to give a plug for that quick. And then uh, any way that coaches can kind of follow your journey. I know you're sharing some of your own personal journey on, on social media. Um, tell us a little bit about The Other Side of Glory and how can coaches follow you? The Other Side of Glory is very different than the politics of coaching. It's a narrative 
uh, it tells the story of a high school team that had been snake bit for 40 or 45 years. And the whole history of this high school girls basketball program, they'd never made the state tournament. And they had come so close so many times that it was, um, it was kind of one of those things where the whole community just decided we're cursed. It's never going to happen, you know? And so um, I followed them through a season and they had very high expectations going into the season. They were, you know, again, predicted to make the state tournament as they had many times before. And, and I think one of the biggest lessons from the book is I think for, for teams that struggle or teams that are always on the outside looking in, what, what does it take to be a state tournament team? I think that they have the misconception that when you go 24 and two, it's a cakewalk. It's fun. It's, everything's great that season. That's not always the case. In fact, it's rarely the case that a, a, a 24 and two season in a state tournament trip had no bumps in the road. Every team has obstacles, no matter how good or bad they are. And, and seeing how they overcome those obstacles to reach that ultimate goal, I think is, is something that can be inspiring to coaches and players. Um, it's, it's a, a fun story. It's a, you know, there's, there's certainly highs and lows. I mean, I've had some coaches reach out to me and say, man, I can relate to what this coach went through. And reading some of those passages was really hard because I, I could feel his pain. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a great lesson for parents, players, and coaches, and hopefully something that inspires everybody. Thanks for listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out The Politics of Coaching by Carl Pearson. It's available on Amazon. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Carl J. Pearson. I know he is sharing some of his story and battle with cancer, and it is powerful and worth the follow.